Romans chapter 16. If you need a Bible to follow along with this morning, our ushers would like to give you one if you just slip up your hand. Maybe you forgot it in the car at home and maybe you don't have it on your device. Leave your hands up high and we'll give you a Bible to follow along with this morning. Okay, Romans chapter 16. Um, all of the things that we do before we hear God's word are, are aspects of worship to prepare hearts to hear God's word and when we depart, uh, as a result of having worshipped with integrity and hearing from God's word, we should leave more joyfully than when we first came. Amen? Amen. Uh, so hopefully you'll be smiling a bit bigger and your hearts will be filled with more joy than when you came this morning um, as a result of spending this time together. For those of you who are guests, we typically go through one book at a time in our morning and evening services, and for the last two years we've been going through the book of Romans. Obviously we're in the final chapter of that book, and in the final chapter of this book, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about quite a few people who have trusted Christ as their Savior, who have persevered through the thick and thin, as it were, of the Christian life, uh, and he concludes this book with a listing of 27 different names, but actually uh, there's more than 27 people discussed here. Uh, and why, why such a big list? Uh, this is the largest list at the conclusion of any one of Paul's books. Um, and I think there's a whole lot of reasons why. Uh, but as we go through these names together, and, and God willing, finishing up this list today, so that we can move on and finish the rest of the book next week and the week following, um, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider where you are in this list. You might not see your name, obviously. But with such a comprehensive list of people, I wonder if the Lord wouldn't have us identify with one or more of them. For this reason, we know that chapters 1 through 11 is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And when that gospel is received by you, it transforms the way you live. Would you agree? We have no gospel if we don't have a changed life. <laughs> okay? It transforms the way you live outside the church when we're not together with each other as Christians. And it does transform the way we live inside the church when we are together. Is that simple enough? So as we go through this list, I want you to pray and say, Lord, where am I in this list? Where am I? And if at the end of today, you can't find yourself mirrored here, the grace of God in your own life mirrored in this text, then I want you to do something else. I want you to say, Pastor Tim, I really would like to talk about how I might be able to be included in this list, at least by the acts of grace in my life. Does that make sense? Two things. Find yourself, and if you don't, be willing now to sit down and to talk to somebody about how I can be actively living out the grace of God in my life outside and inside the church. Is that simple? Okay. We went through a handful of names already together in our study, and they've been delightful people to get to know, from Phoebe to Priscilla and Aquila, this, this uh, marital team of God's grace and their influence that we studied uh, last time we were together, we studied this sweet man, Epinetus, 
and why he was so valuable to this church and to Paul. And uh, we spent a little bit of time discussing um, the importance of his faithfulness as being the first fruits of the grace of God in Asia to Paul. This man uh, persevered well uh, from the beginning of his salvation experience all the way through. There are four names here I'd like to introduce you to that are in different verses, but they're all described the same way. Okay? The first one we'll see here in verse 6. You'll see a very familiar name in verse 6. Greet Mary, Romans 16, 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Go with me to verse 12, if you would. Verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphoas, Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Now, being a student of God's word, uh, you probably noticed that there was one word or phrase that was familiar to all three. And if I was to ask you what that was, you would probably all say they were hard workers. They were hard workers. And you would be correct. They worked very hard. This is Mary. This is a common name that would have been used in this culture probably by Jew or Gentile. This was a a lady who was willing to grow weary in her service to the saints. Tryphena and Tryphosa are sisters. And how do we know that? Well, it was very common for names to uh, semantically not only sound alike, but mean different things within this culture. But parents intentionally would name their children certain names, so they would always be known as sisters. And this is, I don't have time to go into all the cultural hermeneutic of this, but um, uh, these are two gals who are sisters, and uh, their names mean dainty and delicate. Dainty and delicate, uh, which would tell us that they probably came from a very affluent family. These were uh, sisters who were schooled in the high culture of Roman society. Um, when I was uh, going through my college years, we had a, a freshman class, and it was just basically called freshman orientation. And um, there's only one class of that whole semester that I remember, and probably because of the trauma it bore on my life. The, the, the president's wife of the university came in to speak to us in one particular week, and the whole thing was on proper etiquette uh, in a, when you were enjoying a meal with a person of high importance. And um, they talked about proper dress. If we were to have a steak dinner at the White House or we were to have a dinner with any high-ranking public official or, or maybe someone even at the university that was uh, of high rank, so to speak, and And uh, so proper dress, and we were taught proper etiquette of how to sit and how to sit up, right? 
And, and we, were, we were taught about what to say and what not to say in those uh, environments, in those venues. We were, we were taught the purpose for every utensil on both sides of our plate. And I didn't know at that point that there could be so many. I was not raised in a very dainty or delicate way. Uh, we were told how to remove our napkin and, and place it on our laps in very appropriate ways. It's like I was thinking at this time I did not come to college to go to home ec class. This is, this is not my major. We were taught how to use, and culture may have changed by now, I don't know, the, 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 uh, the litany of utensils on the right side of the plate and how to use them from the outside in and how it was a tremendous, horrible social faux pas if you started from the inside and went out. Why there was a particular size fork or utensil. Or, and on the left side, there was two more. And why you had to do the same thing on the left that you did at the right. And the left was typically used for uh, maybe your first um, serving. Uh, and maybe in a five, six course meal and so forth. And, and then we were taught how to properly when we were done. We were taught how to eat. We were taught how many times to chew before we swallowed, so as to not um, embarrass the group by choking, right? I'm not kidding you. Um, I'm sure it was very helpful. I've never choked in any dinner environment yet, right? Um, we were taught what not to do with bread if bread was served. You know, don't sop up your plate with the bread. And at that point, I knew it was psychological abuse because what good is a meal, right? If you couldn't take your bread and sop up the gravy with your bread and your buddy, that, that, that's what I live for, right? So that was disappointing. And then when we were done, we were taught how to take that napkin and, and, and uh, uh, fold it properly and put it in a particular place at the end. And we were, uh, we were taught how to hold our hands and to let those who are serving us know when, it was, when we, were con we were finished with that particular course and so forth. And um, uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa certainly would have embraced and enjoyed all those things that I did not. But they were, they were from a high-class family. These were affluent sisters. We have no indication in this particular text that they had any other saved family members. So think about that within this culture. Think about what happens in affluent families when children are saved out from under the way they were religiously and socially reared. Okay. Think about what happens to that in our culture. Okay. What all the parents go through. I raised you properly, but I taught you well, but don't you respect me anymore? Are you leaving the family too? I'm sure they went through all these things and all the assumptions of parents are not always true in those environments, but kids get lambasted with those assumptions from time to time. And I find it interesting that these, these wealthy gals who, who may have lost their inheritance, who knows? 
because of stepping out in Christ and being defined as hard workers. Hard workers. Persis. This would probably have been a lady of Persian descent, as her name would indicate. She's beloved and a dear friend of whom Paul, through who most likely was in correspondence with, and this gal would have also been known as working hard in the Lord. My friends, there are two basic words for work in the New Testament. One is often used of a general work for the Lord, and one is only used in particular contexts to designate working by the sweat of your brow, or working uh, until you scrape your knuckles, or working until you just want to drop. Uh, this is the Greek word for all four of these people that's the same, and it's the word kapiao, and it just simply means to labor to the point of exhaustion. To labor to the point of exhaustion. And really, folks, where is any local church without these kinds of people who just labor to the point of exhaustion? I find it fascinating here that the Apostle Paul did not give every name this description in this text. Because for those who do labor to the point of exhaustion, I'll tell you from ministry experience that most, oft, most often we're looking around and saying, we're tempted to, why isn't everybody working this hard? <laughs> Work till you drop. And the reality is, not everyone is going to be burdened to do that. These are probably people with the gift of helps. Typically people that work to the point of exhaustion are uh, either pastor-teacher gifted or they're people with the gift of helps. And not everyone's gifted that way. But the point of the whole text is, where do you find yourself? If you don't find yourself working to the point of exhaustion, that's fine. But where do you find yourself in this faithful list of grace-filled people? If you want to cross-reference in the margin of your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. This word is used in that verse. As a matter of fact, Paul is commending the Thessalonian believers there that when they were born again, uh, he, he prayed and was thankful for their work of faith, their labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Both Greek words for work are used in that verse. The general word is work of faith. The word that's in our context in Romans 16 is found in the second phrase in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, labor of love. Typically in English translations, you'll find them translated that way. One one's work and one's labor. Work and labor. Not all the time, but most of the time. But what I find interesting, the way Paul used this in 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians 1.3, it really can read in the original language, all right? It's labor produced out of love. It's work produced out of their faith, labor out of their love. Perseverance because they had hope. Any practical way that we live out our Christianity outside or inside the church 
always has a divine source of grace. Faith produced work. Love. Love produced working till we couldn't stand. And hope produces perseverance, steadfastness, consistency. That was these people. The next two souls I find uh, enjoyable as well. Andronicus and Junius. Andronicus and Junius. They're Latin and Greek names, respectively. I find it interesting here, again, the diversity of culture that's represented in both of these individuals. What we find here is our second husband-wife team in the text. There's three aspects of these folks that Paul lists here, three virtues. They're his kinsmen. They're his fellow prisoners. And they were outstanding among the apostles. Fascinating married couple. Fascinating married couple. When Paul says here, they're my kinsmen, they're most probably descendants from the same Jewish tribe. Most people do not believe that these were actually blood relatives, although some do. I do not believe they are because in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to write that as a cross-reference next to these two people's names, this married couple's names, Paul said in his own personal testimony, he lost everything and everyone when he trusted Christ as a Savior. So my gut is they're probably from the same Jewish tribe. He says here, they're my fellow prisoners. At some point, these folks had spent a night or two in jail with Paul. They had been in prison because they were preaching Christ and him crucified. And they knew what it meant to endure that degree of affliction. It says here, they're outstanding among the apostles. They're not called apostles here. The word apostle is used in several different ways in the New Testament, and it can just simply mean messenger. But what's fascinating about this married couple is these were messengers who had become known as well as the original apostles. And it could be because they were very similar to Paul's background. They were of the same tribe. They had experienced similar imprisonment and affliction. But these folks had become leaders of leaders as a married couple. A little bit different than Priscilla and Aquila, to be sure. We're not not told anywhere in Scripture that this couple was involved in uh, teaching ministry or or public uh, speaking. We're just told what we're told here. But we're thankful for Paul for remembering Uh, the value of a married couple serving the Lord together again. I just want to challenge you, married couples in the auditorium, whether Priscilla and Aquila, or whether these two sweet people, do you serve the Lord together as a couple? And I would tell you, uh, some of the greatest marital agony that we've had the opportunity to disciple over the years, often is in relationship to a husband who's passionate about serving the Lord and a wife who's not, or vice versa. The Bible's very clear. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? 
It's so much more joyful to serve the Lord together if you're married with your spouse. Now, where I'm talking to people who both profess Christ, I I certainly understand that there's folks in here who know Christ and, and your spouse that you love deeply has not yet to come to know him. I'm speaking to two people who are both saved who are married. Do you find yourself described in either one of these two married couples? Are you serving the Lord together as co-laborers for the gospel's sake? There's a name in verse 8 and a name in verse 9, if you'll look at those verses uh, with me here. Both of these folks also have the same description given to them. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. My beloved in the Lord. And then go down to verse 9. Our fellow worker, that's Urbanus, but the the next person mentioned in verse 9 is Stockies, my beloved. Why just this mere simple description of these two individuals, my beloved in the Lord? Well, very little is known about these two outside what's given to us here. The emphasis here merely on beloved in the Lord in relationship to the chapter context and the uh, book context, Paul here is emphasizing their position in the family. And their position they have in the church family of Rome is only because of their position they have in Christ when they're born again. The implication here, I, I believe confidently, is simply this. These may have been two newer believers in the context of the Roman church that Paul had become familiar with. They hadn't had the opportunity yet to be um, serving in the church for months or years, but maybe just a few weeks. We don't know. But Paul's emphasis of these two folks is, listen, don't leave them behind. I don't have any other way to describe them But the most important way that anyone can be labeled in a New Testament local church is to be beloved. Beloved of God first in Christ and then loved by the family of God. This is really a a no soul left behind approach to shepherding. You may not know them well, they may not be popular, but I know who they are. And they're just as significant as anyone else in the church, even though they haven't been around long. We had a, a fellow profess Christ as his Savior two weeks ago, Wednesday, and, and um, uh, Don Westman was, uh, we had a time just a public prayer on Wednesday night for about 40 minutes, and, and Don Westman, uh, that, that fellow that got saved was in uh, church the Wednesday after he got saved, and we recognized that he had trusted Christ, and when Don Westman began to pray, the first sentence out of his mouth was, Uh, Father, I thank you for my new brother in Christ. A week later. Um, that That was precious to us in that prayer meeting. Because the most important person we can become familiar with in a local church context is Christ. 
And we're labeled in Him. And we're all equal in Him. And that's these two fellows. Urbanus, as we noticed earlier in verse 9, a Latin name. He too probably came from the same social construct as the two sisters, dainty and delicate. Okay? Uh, his name means refined or elegant. He was probably a wealthy man of the arts in Rome. He's called here a fellow worker in Christ. Again, someone that's not defined by kapiao, but by generally being known as a teammate, fellow worker in any aspect of the ministry that just needed assistance. He probably was a very well-educated man, a very well-spoken man, a man that was just willing to fill gaps anywhere there were gaps. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow worker. Apelles, in verse 10, a very common name in Rome. Probably with an uncommon pedigree. This would have been a man that was not highly educated or refined. Would have been probably what we would know today as maybe a, the bluest of blue-collar workers. But I find it interesting here, he's called tested. That's how he's described. He's approved of Christ. The word approved here is used throughout the New Testament to speak of someone who has been found genuine after they have been sifted by persecution in the most extreme ways. Paul uses this term in 2 Timothy 2.15, studied to show yourself approved. The root word here um, in the Greek language um, simply means genuine. But in this context, it would have been the opposite of fake or counterfeit. As a matter of fact, in the first century, and I've told you this before when this word's used in other contexts in Scripture, uh, when this word is uh, used, it means the opposite of counterfeit, but there was actually a group of people in this culture that would test currency to make sure that it was genuine and not counterfeit. They would look at the coins, and they would, uh, they would be metal specialists, and they could tell, just like we have folks today that could determine what's counterfeit and what's not. They had the same folks back there, and those folks were called dokimas, right? They were the ones that proved something genuine. After a lot of testing and a lot of scrutiny. So somehow this man had been through a lot of testing and scrutiny since his conversion. And he had not allowed the testing or the scrutiny or the, the cultural pressure, whether it be inside his home or outside his home, to dissuade him or move him away from persevering in Christ-likeness. He doesn't say here he's approved of Paul. <laughs> he's approved of Christ. Positionally, in Christ and practically through 
testing. He's dokimos. He's genuine. Aristobulus. It's interesting here what's said of this individual, those of the household of. Well, from what we know of history at this time, that this man, who's not being particularly addressed here, but the people of his household are, so we've got to be very careful with that. Those of the household of Aristobulus. Aristobulus would have been the grandson of Herod the Great. So probably Paul's addressing those who were slaves or employees of the grandson of Herod the Great, who probably is now deceased at this point. But with Aristobulus, not mentioned in specific, we're probably talking to a group of people who were known to have served under him. And we could be talking about a group of people that had formed a church as a group of people that used to work under this now deceased grandson of a leader, a political leader. And what do we know about these people? Just what we're told. Just greet them. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. I believe from studying the history of this, I believe what Paul's telling us here, that those who are not affluent in any culture, not well-educated, people who are not well-known, people whose boss is now deceased and, and they're walking forward with the Lord, they've formed probably a house church. And it doesn't always take a ton of money and multiple diplomas on your wall to form a church that's recognized by God. Why? Because what is a church made up of? Those who are in Christ. Remember 11 times in these verses from week one when we got into Romans 16. The cultural, social, academic, all these things really don't matter. What matters for all these people is that they're in Christ. And and these folks who were probably most unlearned in the culture could still learn Christ and grow in him. Herodian, probably a Jewish man, probably a man that didn't have a proper name known in this culture, so he was named after the household in which he served as a slave. So now we're coming down to someone that was probably most insignificant in this culture. Probably a Jewish slave, probably freed at this point. Someone who was associated with Herod in some way. But again, a servant, a simpleton but not primarily known as that, but primarily known as in Christ and serving the Lord. Narcissus, those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Again, a very similar situation probably to those of the household of Aristobulus. Paul may be addressing another small church within the city of Rome. Narcissus would have been a wealthy individual. 
Again, we're not told that this particular person is a saved person, but we're told to greet those or greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. So again, people being able to persevere well, even though their boss, their owner, their leader doesn't. I think that's huge. I think we could cross-reference here 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, where Paul says it's really not glory for you if you're able to exist well under a good boss. But there's glory for you if you're able to persevere well under a really bad boss. And he gives the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who endured well through sufferings and counted it a privilege to do so. Two extreme class, social class environments here. Narcissus and those in his household. And the impoverished, hardworking people persevere well. Rufus, verse 13. You see, I thought that name only existed in the Appalachians in our country. Well, we find it's true history here. Greet Rufus, a choice man of the Lord. And what's fascinating here, also his mother and mine. The word Rufus means red. In the Latin. I believe this name is also found, this man's also found in Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. And I'll clarify why, but one of the most important reasons why is because Mark wrote his gospel to the Roman believers. And Paul's writing this letter to Roman believers, and Rufus is mentioned here and in Mark 15 and verse 21. He's a choice man of the Lord. Why? Mark 15.21 tells us that it was his father, Simon, who was compelled to offer to carry the cross of Christ. And Paul's calling Rufus a choice man in the Lord, and he doesn't define any other person in this list that way. Most historians and theologians believe that you read on this, believe that this, this boy, who's now a man, had taken on the position and the disposition of his father and his mother. Willing to go to the greatest extremes to bear the sacrifice for people's sin on this earth only as a man and not the Savior. Willing to lay down his life like his father would have done, like his mother would have done. Paul, with great energy, wants to get to Rome to see Rufus and his mom. Most likely, his mother's mentioned here. Because Paul, like I said early in Philippians 3, lost everything and everyone when he owned Christ and alone. Probably lost his mom too. So those of you that have lost moms, either because you have owned Christ, or maybe they're passed into eternity, and you've... You've had your mom replaced by a mom on earth in Christianity, and you've learned from them in a Titus 2 kind of way. This is, Paul had that person. The Apostle Paul had that person. 
And he longed to see this choice man and a woman that he apparently had endeared as a mother. His mother and what? What does the text say? And mine. Now my wife would tell you that every man needs a mom. <laughs> and there, she's absolutely right. Uh, we're pretty helpless creatures, aren't we, fellas? Um, come on. I'm sorry to admit. When I get sick, I react a whole lot differently than when my wife gets sick. Um, it's not a bigger baby in the house than, than Tim Potter. And my wife could be on death's door and still keep moving, right? I get a scratchy throat, stuffy nose, and a slight temperature, and um, help me, right? <laughs> I don't, don't think Paul was like that. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. There's, there's a spiritual value to this lady's life that no one could put a dollar amount Upon it. Spiritual, mature womanhood is essential in the life, again here, of the apostle and the existence of the church. What do we have in verses 14 and 15 as we close this morning? We have two more groups of believers given to us here without description. We just know that they're all in Christ. And we know from what we read a couple weeks ago that they're clearly divided into groups, giving us the probability of probably two more churches in the city of Rome. There could be up to four different local churches that Paul's writing to that this letter is circulating to these churches. He says here to these two different groups of people, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that basically, folks, is a command by Paul to make sure that there was a public way to express practically the unity that they had spiritually. In other words, if, if someone is not endeared to the flock, in a spiritually intimate and close way, there's probably something we can do to help that hurting soul. Everyone that's gathering to show their public unity in these two groups, praise God for that public expression of a spiritual reality. And then Paul concludes with one final layer of interdependence beyond Rome, yet including Rome here, that is absolutely as essential to understand as anything else we've gone through in this context. All the churches of Christ greet you. From Rome to Elycrium to all that we've discussed at the end of chapter 15 and verse 16, Paul's desire is here is to have a shared Reality of ministry, compassion, and experience among like-minded churches. All of them, not one left out, all of them that are like-minded greet you. All the churches 
of Christ greet you. And I think for us, and I think for those of you who are newer, this might not make sense, but for those of you that have been here for a while, you've known our intention to make sure that we're doing everything possible to partner with like-minded churches, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to partner with them so that we can plant more churches with them. And we're never going to stop seeking out those like-minded churches to have that shared expression of love and in ministry intention. And may it increase more and more. This evening I'm heading out to Phoenix, Arizona to meet with 20 different like-minded missions agencies. And what's the intention of that? To do something that these agencies have had a hard time doing for decades. That is bringing all their churches in our country and across the globe together for gospel intentions. We're going to have several thousand churches in our country and across the globe represented in those 20 different agencies. And when I reached out to them to get together to partner like this in our country and in the world, I didn't spend more than 15 minutes with any one of those leaders. And they said, this is long overdue. Most of them said this, when our When our agency was formed, it was formed with a particular intention to partner with like-minded ministries like this, and we just never got around to it. So let's do this. So that's tomorrow night and Tuesday morning. Keep moving. Keep moving for the gospel's sake. But I want to finish in the last couple minutes that we have, just kind of with some devotional uh, highlights, some devotional conclusions about these sweet people that we've talked about, okay? And these are just mine, okay? After meditating over these people, their histories, their lives, their situations, and so forth, here's just a few. I don't expect you to write them all down. I'll just share them with you. I would say that these people were genuinely and generally optimistic people. People who are not optimistic right, are typically not governed by the Spirit of God, or they at least don't know the sufficient grace of God to help them keep their heads up and keep their eyes forward when things get tough. I think these people are full of optimism. Optimistic people do gospel work together. And that's only God's grace because there's really no other explanation why we do it. We're changed by his grace at salvation and then we're compelled by his grace to gospel activity both in our Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and uttermost parts of the world. So they enjoyed gospel progress. I think what we find here are people enjoying the attribute of God that's rarely discussed among his people, which is his impartiality. I think we talk about that a lot here, and that's great. Everyone's defined as in Christ, first and foremost. There's really no other label that anyone in this room that claims the name of Christ should really primarily want to have. I am one generation removed from being supported by the government uh, as an Indian. My 
great-grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee Indian. I'm probably more Indian than recent politicians have talked about. (laughs) Right? My mom, my mom could have actually gotten government help, but she refused to get it. I could say, I could wear the label, I'm Cherokee, and I could do a lot of study of the Cherokee tribe in our country, and, and I could be proud of that. I'm going to tell you, I'm always proud of my heritage. But when I come among you folks, right, I'm in Christ. Whether Italian, Irish, English, you name it. Regardless of your degree or pedigree, what kind of car you drive in, what kind of house you drive in, or do you live in, um, right? Have you ever tried driving in your house? Yeah, yeah, some of you have. I can think of the stories, yeah. All right? You get the point? When we come together, folks, we're just all in Christ. And we are about finding ourselves which person we identify with. And if we don't, how can we get moving in that direction? Again here, there's ladies, single married sisters, married couples, mothers. There's physically younger and older. Different political backgrounds and maybe even different political persuasions. Varied spiritual age, some young in Christ, some older in Christ, some weak, some strong. Different spiritual experience based on their gifting and their realities. Some named and some given somebody else's name. But none of that matters because the only reason... They're here is because they're healthy spiritually, and the only reason they're healthy spiritually is because they're all in Christ, and they're growing in Christ, and I might add, they're helping each other do the same. They're helping each other do the same. And my friends, there's not one pastor, teacher listed in this group of names. I find that a wonderful reality here. It's a shared experience, this gospel journey, isn't it? (laughs) On every level. And when this pastor teacher walks into the group of God's people, he's not known first as the pastor of the church. He's known first as being in Christ. And he just happens to serve in the way God gifted him. We're a family, equal in Christ Jesus. Multiple people, multiple cities, multiple regions throughout the world, and from Jerusalem forward, interdependent activity for the cause of Christ. And may that always be our reality here at Grace. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together.